Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Fighting a wildfire in Texas. Building a network to connect 40 million people to the internet. Cutting pollution with chainsaws. Hear Chubb customers tell their stories at chubb.com slash podcast. And stay tuned after the show to hear how a family moved to Napa and created one of the largest private wineries in the world. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, December 7th, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We are going to start off this week previewing the special Senate election in Alabama that is coming up on Tuesday, December 12th, right around the corner. And this week we saw President Trump and the Republican National Committee re-engage in the race despite the numerous allegations of sexual misconduct against Roy Moore, the Republican nominee. So we'll talk a little bit about what has gone on there in the past week, what is driving Trump's decision, and a little bit about what we expect to happen in Alabama. Uh, We're also going to talk about the latest in the sexual harassment allegations roiling Congress. There was a new one on Friday and also a new revelation about an old one involving uh, settlement of a claim with taxpayer money. Uh, So we will run through all of those and the resignation, of course, of Senator Al Franken, which happened as we were taping today. Uh, And for our final segment this week, we are going to have uh, a special guest in to talk about Politico Playbook's 2018 power list. It's 18 people uh, in politics who are going to matter in 2018. It covers uh, operatives who run the big uh, congressional groups to uh, people running some of the interest groups that are going to have a big say to some of the candidates themselves who are running to some behind the scenes players behind some uh, big political names around the country. Uh, So we are going to talk through that as well. A very exciting segment quick note before we get started. Remember, you can email us questions at nerdcast at politico.com. And also, don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. All right, let's start off this week by welcoming a couple of our regular guests, White House reporter Eliana Johnson. Hello. Hello. And White House reporter Nancy Cook. Hello, Nancy. Hello. All right, so we are going to start off this week talking about the White House's latest uh, political gambit. Uh, Our first data point, uh, $50,000. That is how much money the uh, Republican National Committee transferred to the Alabama Republican Party uh, the other day uh, upon reengaging with the Alabama Senate race with just a few days to go. Uh, The RNC had pulled out along with most other pieces of the Republican Party apparatus uh, after uh, women came forward accusing Roy Moore of sexual misconduct, uh, ranging from uh, attempting to date them while they were teenagers and he was in his 30s to some who alleged uh, sexual assault. So, uh, but Trump, uh, President Trump decided to uh, reaffirm his endorsement for uh, more earlier this week, he said uh, that uh, the country, certainly in his party, can't afford to have a liberal Democrat coming from Alabama to the Senate, and the RNC followed suit. Um, so, Nancy, um, this all comes back to Trump, right? I mean, he's he said he he um, personally thinks the accusations against Moore are BS. Kind of coming back to what we talked about last week about this, like on a number of issues, there's this reality distortion field that kind of is following him around. And uh, and now the, the RNC is following suit as he goes back in. 
Right. I think it just goes to show that and, – and just to be – like one interesting point is I went back and read some of the more clips this morning and Trump actually only endorsed more two days ago. To me, it feels like a week ago <laughs> as a, or like four weeks ago in Washington with like the pace of the news cycle and everything that's happening. But it was actually only two weeks ago or two days ago, excuse me. And the and the uh, special election is uh, this coming Tuesday. Um, so like roughly a week before the special election, he did this. And I think it surprised a bunch of people in the White House. But I think it's just further evidence. You know, Republicans keep trying to distance themselves from Trump or, you know, try to take a moral ground. But at this point, like Trump really is uh, the owner of the Republican Party, uh, at least in my view. You know, the RNC is backing him. Uh, you know, he completely ignored the advice of uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in doing this. You know, McConnell does not want more in the Senate. And Trump sort of went ahead and did this. And, you know, I think that he feels like he wants more in there. He's totally over willing to look these accusations that uh, Moore is a child predator. He's put the Republicans in a really tricky spot on this in 2018. But, you know, he's going to go ahead and do it anyway. Yeah, Eliana, what uh, what's your sense of kind of what what happened leading up to this? And and just I don't know. I mean, does it say anything broader about about Trump in the White House that we didn't already know? I'm, I've been kind of wrestling with that question a little bit. Well, I'm in the process of writing a piece about this. And one thing that I've come across is essentially that White House aides had no indication that the president was going to endorse Luther Strange when he did so in the primaries. And they had no indication that he was going to come back around and endorse more when he did that. And I really, I do think that speaks to the fact um, – of this reality, it speaks to the reality in this White House that uh, people really have no idea what this president is going to do on certain things at any given time. And a lot of what he does seems to be a um, – like in physics, you know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Well, that's kind of how Trump behaves um, to the advice he's given. So when he's told that Roy Moore is a predator, you can't go there, uh, his reaction to that is to inch closer to Roy Moore. And I, I think it raises this interesting question about how how can you actually give this president advice? Is it possible to um, to advise him in a constructive way because it does seem like all the advice he was given um, about Roy Moore simply led him to dig his heels in and and uh, back the, the guy and to push the RNC back into this race. And I don't think uh, either of those were things that um, really any other Republican aside from maybe Roy Moore himself and his strongest backers in Alabama wanted him to do. Yeah, I, th I thought it was interesting that I, I don't think the RNC has like put out a statement about any of this. It, they they do not seem particularly eager to own this this reengagement. But that uh, with the when party has the White House, the National Committee is an, essentially an, a political arm of the president, and here we are. Um, that point about how to how to give Trump advice is interesting. I feel like that we've also seen some kind of notable examples in the past few weeks uh, of as we've seen all year of. Um, how Trump advisors either in the White House or around also try and use the press to kind of float things forward to him. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But it, it, that that is um, a tactic that that is also in deep use. Yeah, we saw that. We've seen that a bunch of times with immigration decisions, the DACA decision. Uh, you know, we saw that with the transgender ban. My understanding is that a bunch of lawyers were sort of saying to him, you know, well, let's study this some more. He didn't like being told that. 
Uh, you know, Mattis was against it too, and Trump went ahead and just did the opposite and declared that there was going to be a transgender ban. I mean, we've seen this with policy decisions again and again. And Eliana's right. I think it makes it really hard to for anyone in the White House to know how to present information to him. Um, and it also, I think, just makes it really hard for the White House to make decisions or move forward or have policy discussions. Yeah. So, you know, again, let's let's focus back in on Alabama. I mean, so th- this is coming up on, on December 12th. That's the, the next Tuesday. Um, the I mean, the, the other aspect of this, Eliana, is there's there's now a stronger sense than ever before that more is is going to win, I think, is, is kind of the other aspect. Playing there are this, right? so many layers to this developing. <laughs> yeah. So Roy Moore is going to win. And Mitch McConnell's evolution on this also, I think, forced by the president is fascinating. This is a case in which I think the White House made a better political calculation than Mitch McConnell, which may be a first. But the White House saw the options to, um, to try to push more out of this race, all of them proposed by Mitch McConnell, and essentially said, we don't think any of these are good options. And so we're not going to push the president to come out publicly and say more should get out of this race. So the White House line from the beginning on this was that Alabama voters should decide. And that was a political calculation, not necessarily a matter of principle for them. They just didn't see a way, practical way to push more out of the race. Uh, but McConnell was saying he, that he thought more should get out of the race and that he would move to, you know, there was a speculation he would move to expel Roy Moore if he was elected, if he didn't get out and he was elected. McConnell is now taking the White House line and saying this is a matter for Alabama voters to decide, essentially conceding that Moore is likely to win. And I think he's unlikely to expel Moore if he um, is elected to the Senate. At the same time, I mean, this essentially explains, I think, a lot of why Democrats have moved aggressively to push Al Franken out of the Senate and draw a clear line um, for what behavior is acceptable um, for their members. And it puts them in a powerful position to squeeze McConnell and make the Republicans look terrible on this issue. And Paul Ryan could uh, push Blake Farentold out of the House. He hasn't done that yet. But it would be very hard for Mitch McConnell to uh, expel Roy Moore from the Senate without uh, cooperation from the majority of his uh, conference or to continue to dig his heels on on this. He, he's in a really tough position. I, I will say I I think that – I, I think there's more of a chance than than maybe you do that this never comes to pass and uh, more ends up not becoming McConnell's problem because he loses. I think it's a, a, well, s- a small chance, but you I th- and Mitch McConnell will both be <laughs> cheersing to that if that happens. Well, so I just think that like there's a couple things I've been struck by a couple things looking at the race over the last weeks. One one of them is the extent to which what's available publicly in terms of polling um, relies. The, the margins really tend to track with how big of a black vote that pollster expects. There are some that have ranged into like the 17, the high teens uh, percent for African-Americans as a share of the electorate, and more is winning those handily. There are some that have ranged up more toward one quarter or even a little bit more of the electorate, and in those, Jones has been more competitive or even leading in a few polls. And the other thing about it that I just think is kind of interesting is that um, Jones... He, 
there aren't enough like Democrats and Democratic leaning independents in Alabama for even if a bunch of Republicans who are disgusted with Roy Moore stay uh, stay home, that's not enough for Jones to win, right? It's just such a red state. So he, Jones is in this odd position of actually he needs to turn out Republicans to vote for him, not just to subtract their votes from Moore. And I, I think the the moving pieces on those two those two big blocks of voters are. Um, just in terms of figuring out the turnout and how they're going to vote is just so hard to track that I, I, I wonder if there's just a little a little more uncertainty um, here going into to Tuesday. Uh, I think you'd probably still bet on more given that he does seem to have rebounded in some of the public polling and it is Alabama. And, and certainly there's no evidence that he's totally cratered like Todd Aiken did uh, in Missouri <laughs> in, in 2012. That's for sure. But but I, I really don't know what to expect going into Tuesday. It'll be an interesting election night to watch. I'm so, not con- I'm not convinced that Moore is going to win. Uh-huh. I just it's think it's uh, more likely than not. More likely than not, you could even say mm. if you wanted to be punny about but, um, it. But um, <laughs> well, and one thing to watch, of course, he's here all week, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and I think one thing to watch is that you know Trump is doing that rally in Pensacola on Friday night. But that's crazy. He's going to Florida. He's I not even know. going to Alabama because they I, planned this before he actually reendorsed the guy. I know, but it'll be interesting to see sort of I think how he talks about more and what happened to more then. It might not even turn into a more rally. It could just be like a Trump know, rally. A Trump rally. Yeah. Where he relives the election and, you know, talks about all the wonder how he's had more legislative victories than any other past president, which is not factually accurate. <laughs> um, but, you know, we don't we don't know. But I think that would right. be something interesting. You to never watch. know what's going to happen at a Trump rally until the rally actually happens. Well, let's look. The the So the election's on Tuesday. Um, we're going to be watching it. I believe the polls close at 8 Eastern Time, 7 Central uh, is when the final polls close in Alabama. Um, but let's let's segue from here. Into, I know we talked about it last week, but there's so much happening every day in this story that we, I want to talk about uh, sexual harassment in Congress again. And obviously more is a part of that. But the, um, the most recent uh, accusation has been leveled against a freshman Democratic congressman named Ruben Kewen. Um, this is my favorite guy now. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Because his defense is the best of all. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that in a second. So he, our data point is 48.5%. This guy does not represent a safe Democratic district. This is a battleground seat. It's a Democratic-leaning battleground seat in Nevada outside Las Vegas. But it's one that's flipped back and forth between the parties uh, in each of the last three elections it's since since the district was drawn. Um he eked out a narrow victory in 2016. And then on Friday, a, a former campaign staffer told BuzzFeed that he repeatedly propositioned her uh, and touched her inappropriately while she was on his staff, uh, leading her to uh, resign from the campaign. Um, Eliana, the thing that struck me most about this was the reaction, which was immediate and actually contained within the story that broke this news, that the chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Ben Ray Lujan, called for Kiwen to resign in that story. Now, Kiwen did not take his advice, which was also... He's the Roy Moore of the Democratic from, Party. From Pelosi and Hoyer and all sorts of other people. But th- that's a big shift in just the last few weeks that we've seen from kind of this urging of deliberation on... Um, uh, mem- you know, people who've come forward, whether it's Franken or John Conyers or others with uh, allegations. And actually, I, it's it would seem to me that the Conyers, the arc of the Conyers story with Pelosi uh, coming in for so much criticism for calling him an icon on Meet the Press to him ultimately resigning this week has played an important part in that that rapid evolution of how how Kewen was dealt with. Yeah. And I also think that watching Republicans wrestle with this Roy Moore thing and Republicans getting hit with the Blake Farentold News has made Democrats realize that 
there's a political opportunity, not just – well, there's a political opportunity in a moral opportunity. And so they've they've come to realize that uh, pouncing on each and every one of these new allegations and pushing out their members is puts them in a really strong position moving forward. And so we saw Democrats in succession, uh, starting with Kirsten Gillibrand and a series of other Democratic female senators yesterday, call for Al Franken to resign. And he probably had was accused of the tamest um, you know, relatively in terms of uh, bad misconduct, con- uh, accused of the tamest things. But I did, I did like um, Kewin's. I don't know how to pronounce Kewin. I think uh defense, which was that uh, Democratic leadership knew about all these things um, before he was elected. Or was it before he was elected? Well, so he's well, arguing they already so, knew about these things essentially. So, and so the BuzzFeed story said basically so that this was he was uh, he was propositioning his finance director on his congressional campaign. She became very uncomfortable. She called, I guess, an acquaintance or uh, a friend, colleague at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and uh, told them that Kewen was making her uncomfortable and she didn't want to work there anymore. And then at that point, that friend told uh, someone else and it got back to the campaign manager that this was, but none of the specifics, at least according to that story, none of the specifics were ever raised. However, Kewen has, has uh, in, in looking for something to grab onto, um, has latched onto this and basically has, has, is lobbing bombs at his own party now saying that Nancy Pelosi knew and Ben Ray Lujan knew about this and were fine with it when they, before they spent millions of dollars on his campaign in 2016. Uh, not, not the words of, uh, someone who seems to be planning to resign. Um, meanwhile, the woman who or, finished, or a remorseful man, or a remorseful. That's true. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, the also the the woman who uh, finished second to him in his primary uh, in 2016, Lucy Flores, has just been uh, savaging him on on Twitter. And also, Harry Reid and the Culinary Union, which are the preeminent political powers in Nevada, which propped Kewen up for a number of years. They were his big political patrons and supported him in that primary. And uh, they have been coming in for some serious criticism uh, from Flores and from others. Uh, since since all this uh, came out uh, just last week, this was on on Friday. Meanwhile, uh, after meanwhile, Al Franken might be resigning. Meanwhile, right now. yeah. So <laughs> basically, like at uh, just about this minute, the Nerdcast curse is don't in make full us effect. re-record this segment, Al Franken. So we assume Al Franken is scheduled don't to make... administer another blow to the body politic <laughs> and make make us re-record this segment. So he's he's talking on the Senate floor uh, this morning. Um, he it is presumed that he's going to resign after more than half of the Democratic Senate caucus called on him to do just that in uh, the last day after uh, our political colleague Heather Cagle broke another story about a woman who says Go, that, Heather um, Franken forcibly uh, kissed her in, I believe, 2006. And I, and again, like this has taken the, the Franken situation took a long time to develop. And there was a lot of, oh, we're disappointed in him. We want an ethics committee investigation until the dam broke with this, the seventh uh, accusation uh, this week. And then you just saw this flood of starting with uh, Democratic women senators and then kind of encompassing everyone else up to minority leader Chuck Schumer uh, coming out and, and calling on him to resign on Wednesday. And and so we'll, we'll see what happens today. But that, that happened very quickly. Uh, yeah. I well. mean, this is like a no cost lamb that Franken's the no cost lamb that Democrats can sacrifice. This is the argument you made the day yeah, that the, the, because, accus- the first accusation broke, right? Yes, but, because there's a Democratic governor in Minnesota um, who can appoint a Democrat to fill his seat. And uh, he allows Democrats to uh, get the moral upper hand in all of this. So uh, 
he's expendable. Nancy? No, I totally agree with that. And also I feel like compared to – I mean I feel like the Democratic senators were like a bit slow. It felt like a little bit the of Senate a – Senate slow? I, I felt like it was a little <laughs> bit of a slow burn with the uh-huh. Franken stuff actually. But I mean compared to Nancy Pelosi coming out and – kind of not really roasting Conyers right away. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? In those initial uh, appearances on Sunday shows where she seemed more tolerant of it, I feel like uh, this definitely, Eliana's right, gives the, the Senate Democrats more moral ground and also shows, you know, when you compare this to Fahrenheit that, like, you know, they're willing to take action. Um, but it's so interesting because, you know, I've talked to other people this week as I've been writing other stories. And, you know, some Republicans are thrilled that, like, you know, Republicans who want to ram this tax plan through as quickly as possible, just as a quick side note, are thrilled that all of this sexual harassment stuff is taking up so much oxygen. Just because there's less focus now on yeah, there's the a tax bill? That's focus. incredible. They're like, oh, I talked to one Republican last night who was like, oh, you know, I don't want to be cynical, but it's amazing <laughs> that this, uh, you know, Al Franken's going to resign as we're going to conference committee. I, so <laughs> I don't want to be cynical, but how great is it that there's... How great that they're going to get to write it in the dark. Oh, my God. Um, so just a, a few quick notes on Minnesota that I think are interesting. Uh, another aspect of this is that a, at least at this point, it it appears that uh, Governor Mark Dayton, the Democratic governor in Minnesota, is leaning toward naming his lieutenant governor, Tina Smith, um, to the post as a placeholder until a 2018 special election to fill the final two years of Franken's term, which is up in 2020. And so that's just another uh, bit of, you know, a, a political angle to this, to uh, appointing a, a, a woman to hold the seat until I think he'll special definitely election. appoint a woman. Um, and there's also a few other women in statewide elected office uh, among Minnesota Democrats. The one thing about this, though, is that I, I think very, very quietly, because the state hasn't, you know, it didn't flip to Trump and whatever, but Minnesota has been moving. One point. Yeah, right. It's and, the most Democratic of all those upper mid, every single one of those other upper Midwest states went to Trump. Uh, unexpectedly in this election, Wisconsin, Iowa, Michigan, um, Michigan North Dakota, South Dakota, which are always Republican. Um, but every, every single one of those, Minnesota was the only holdout. So and, and Clinton only won it by like one, one and a half one points. One and a half points. There's an argument to be made and that I... But that means I don't think it's moving to, in, <laughs> into the Republican column anytime Just because soon. of the momentum yes. of 2018. Yes. I think despite that, there's an argument to be made that Minnesota is going to be the most interesting state uh, in the country politically in 2018. You've got um, two... Uh, Republican-held uh, House seats in the Minneapolis-St. Paul suburbs that uh, are very close. Clinton won one of them. You've got three Democratic-held seats My cousin that Trump is running won. for Congress. That's and, right. Uh, really? In the yeah, third. Yeah, Minnesota three. Yeah, wow. he, Phillips, one give of, him a shout-out. One of, one of several uh, liquor uh, moguls uh, in, in, yes. the, in the House. What, what part of the state is, the, is he running in? It's uh, suburban Minneapolis. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Cool. So th- that, and that's Eric Paulson's seat. That's uh, yeah. the one that Clinton won and is held by a Republican. There are three Democratic seats that Trump won by double digits. There's going to be Amy Klobuchar's up for re-election. That's not expected to be particularly interesting, but there could be now a special election to replace Franken, an open governor's race. Uh, that's a very crowded primary on both sides. There's going to be a lot going on in Minnesota uh, next year. Very exciting. <laughs> I'm thrilled. One final thing before before we break here, though, is uh, Eliana, you just uh, brought this up. There's the case of uh, Republican Congressman Blake Farenthold as well. And we've talked about him in past episodes. We have known in the past he was accused. There was a court case. Yes. And he was accused by a former staffer of sexual harassment. Uh, what we didn't know until Friday uh, was that the House of Representatives paid $84,000 of taxpayer money in a settlement to make this case go away. Farenthold, he's got a 
the filing deadline in Texas is on Monday. This is all happening very close. And then the primaries are in March. He has, there's been some talk about a primary challenger, but notably, Farenthold has not faced the same calls right. to I mean, get why out Paul as Ryan, else. He's, why Paul Ryan has just not shoved him out the door and made a big deal of doing so, I do not understand. I, I've been wondering if there's something we don't know about this. Like, Farenthold has, like, naked pictures of Paul Ryan in his desk <laughs> or something. I mean, seriously, I don't understand it. And it just gets back to the point that you made about Franken. And, like, Franken is a very high-profile Democratic senator. He raises a lot of money for the party, and yet he's expendable. He will be replaced, and right. the party is not... Ultimately, in a year, no one is going to, like, miss having his, his voice there. Blake Farenthold is the backbencher to end all backbenchers. He 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 doesn't he doesn't do anything. He he's widely viewed as an embarrassment, and yet he's not being sh- shoved toward the exit in the same way. I, I, it's I think striking. it's odd. It's striking. Yeah. Anyway, we'll see what happens. All right, for our third and final segment this week, we are going to talk about the Playbook Power List. That was a, a list of and profiles of 18 uh, key political players to watch in 2018. And uh, we have, for the first time in studio, our researcher and Politico Playbook producer, Zach Montalaro, in the studio because he quarterbacked this project. He interviewed all these folks, wrote these profiles, just came out the other day. Zach. Welcome. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. It is good to have you. Yeah. It is good. It is. I think it's good for the listeners to be able to put a voice to to this faceless uh, research uh, titan that you know, they've heard so much about for for years now. I was always told I had a face for radio, so this is the best <laughs> way to do it too. All right. Yeah. So let's talk about this list. Eighteen for eighteen. Eighteen for eighteen. Very very snappy. So it includes some people running some of the the big political groups that mm-hmm. are driving mm-hmm. next year's big elections. Some of the people you may not have heard of behind some powerful politicians. Let's roll through the list a little bit. The, this podcast is at its core about elections. So tell us a bit about the the big players in the battle for the House of Representatives that you profiled. It's the head of the uh, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the head of Congressional Leadership Fund. Right. So. When we were making this list, we, we kind of split it across and we said, what's the big thing to come out of 2018? And of course, it's going to be the election and of course, it's going to be the House. So we're looking at Dan Cena, um, who is the head of the DCCC and Corey Bliss, who's the head of the Senate Leadership Fund. Congressional Leadership Fund. I'm um, sorry, Congressional Leadership Fund and the American Action Network as well. He's the president of that. And those are like the big, the right. the main Republican House outside groups. Right, right, right. Um, and it, the battle for the House would really be a battle between the two of them because the Democrats really lack a large, organized, you know, well-funded outside group. So it really relies on the um, the party committee to handle it. And, and um, Dan Cena is still feeling very bullish. Um, him and the Democrats, you know, have laid out a roadmap that they think they can take back the House. And for them right now, they're feeling like they have a really good shot at it. Um, I profiled Dan. I was talking to Dan, and they said as of you know as of this week, they have ninety one. Republican-held seats that they think that they have a shot in. And that's a, that's a huge number. They only need to win 24. 24. 24. So, 91, that's... Uh, uh, it's stretching it. I think, I think Corey Bliss would quibble with that. I think Corey Bliss would probably <laughs> quibble with that too. But, but it just shows to, it goes to show you how confident they're feeling that they can even say, you know, we're looking at 91 seats. They're not looking at, you know, 50. They're not looking at just the bare minimum they need to take the House. They said, we think that, you know, we're just about a year out from the election that we think that there's 91 places that we can put you know, we can put in money and we at least have a shot at winning. Um, and then Corey Bliss, on the other hand, which profiled by Anna, uh, Alan Palmer, the lead writer for Playbook, or one of the, re- one of the lead writers, rather, um, he, his job is really going to be trying to like, stem that tide and make sure they don't pick up those 24 seats. Uh, and his big benefit is that he is superbly well-funded. Um, he's an outside group. He's got 
backing from just about every major Republican donor, and he will have the money to throw not quite everywhere he wants. That will be a challenge for him as we get closer and closer to Election Day, but to defend a lot of his seats with a lot of money. Just today, just this morning, in Playbook this morning, um, they announced a $2 million ad buy in 24 districts on tax on the tax bill. And this is you know 11 months away from the election, so they are, they are really ready to fight for every inch. Wow, and th- and that to be clear, that's not that's not a political ad. This is right, an issue ad. Right. This is just trying to yes, boost like this is an issue ad. But yeah, th- th- this is this is just trying to boost the party on tax reform, mm-hmm. which we've seen a couple new polls out this week. The tax mm-hmm. bill is not well liked. No, it's not. It's <laughs> not. Um, and speaking of polls too, you know, I, I think the headwinds are heading towards Democrats. And say what you want about um, generic ballot polls. You know, Charlie's not a huge fan, I know, but. Uh, RCP this morning had Democrats up eight in a generic ballot. That's a good sign for Dan Cena. That's something that he is feeling pretty confident about, you know, um, you know, almost a year away from the election. I think it's so interesting just getting to meet some of these people behind all this mm-hmm. money, which it, first of all, like dealing with that much money that these Crazy. folks do seems like a, a response. Like I, I would struggle to get out of bed sometimes in the morning knowing <laughs> that it's like, oh, I'm going to spend a few million dollars today. Yeah. Like that yeah. seems, that seems like a lot of responsibility but but also i just think that like the contrast in personalities there is interesting like dan cena is like very much has been a kind of behind the scenes kind mm-hmm. of head down operative for a while Corey bliss is a little bit more front facing he has a um a kind of theory of the case about how politics uh, how campaigns are won that focuses very much on field organizing and some stuff like that which is a little rarer on the republican side but he he's an evangelist for his type of campaigns and he goes out there and he sells them um and, and it's just you know kind of interesting contrast in personalities in addition to the uh, obviously contrast in goals between the democratic congressional committee and the house republican super PAC right. And when I talked to Dan too, he he kind of recognized that in the past that Democrats may have been lacking in uh, working with their grassroots, and he said that's a concerted goal of them is to you know empower their grassroots, which is of course everyone is going to say. But um, Dan Cena was a big fan of saying we need to arm the rebels, we need to arm the rebels, we need to arm the rebels. So I think you know we'll see that battle on the ground this year. I like that. Arm the rebels, especially with the new Star, Star Wars, Wars movie coming out. Star Wars, we're, Very a week, we're a week away. Yeah. All right. Let's let's pivot. Tell us about some of the candidates on mm-hmm. the on the power list and and why they were on there. So we had a, we had a handful of candidates. I think probably the most interesting ones is Josh Hawley in Missouri, uh, and Kevin DeLeon in California. Tell uh, us a little more about them. Yeah. Yeah. So Josh Hawley is a very interesting case. He's the current Attorney General of Missouri and um, the likely nominee for Republican Senate race in twenty eighteen. Uh, you know, it's not his yet, but what makes him really interesting is that he has both. You know, he has the backing of just about every aspect of the Republican Party. He is the chosen candidate of Mitch McConnell, but he's also the chosen candidate of Steve Bannon and the president. Um, the president was there last week for a, or two, you know, recently when he was there recently for a tax rally. Uh, he called out Josh in the audience and said, "There's our next senator. There's our next senator." So not an explicit endorsement, but read into that what you will. And but Steve Bannon has also said this is our guy. This is our guy, which is something that we've basically not seen. Right? Something That's really that, interesting. Consensus. Yeah, consensus. <laughs> consensus in the Republican Party, which is a rare thing today, uh, is had in Josh Hawley and um, Claire McCaskill. His you know would be challenger, or he is the would be challenger to Claire McCaskill. Uh, she's probably the most endangered Democratic candidate too. So it you know if there's one battle to watch, it's going to be theirs. Yeah, and we talk a lot all the time about those ten. Senate Democrats in Trump states and McCaskill in one of the five that Trump won by double digits. Um, And yeah, I mean, that's definitely been a formula for success for Senate Republicans in the past, like uh, a number of their candidates who won in 2014 when they took back the Senate. I'm thinking about Tom Cotton in Arkansas, Dan Sullivan in Alaska were folks who like brought together both kind of the more leadership aligned 
outside groups like, say, mm-hmm. the Chamber of Commerce, uh, but then also the Club for Growth. And now, obviously, Trump and kind of his base have added like a third dimension to that that right. fight within the Republican Party. But it's still interesting to see. Uh, we we should know. I I think the Club for Growth is is very high on Holly too. I don't know if they've officially endorsed him yet, but I think I think they have. Um, meanwhile, on the flip side, we got Kevin DeLeon, the state Senate president in California, mm-hmm. who's primary. Well. Kind of. California's a little weird. We'll get into yes. that. But he's running against Dianne Feinstein, the mm-hmm. longtime sitting Democratic senator. Yeah, he's, he's an interesting case too because he's someone who's relatively young and was seen as the future of the party in that state. And he, he had options in 2018 to run for what would have assuredly been his you know, election that would more or less hand it to him, either you know, lieutenant general or lieutenant governor. Lieutenant general. Lieutenant general. <laughs> newly elected position. Uh, lieutenant governor or, or you know, other statewide offices. And he said, no, I'm tired of the democratic establishment. That's really what he's going for. And what a lot of young democratic activists in California are looking at is, is can we take out a senator that's been in Washington for years and years and years and years? And it's certainly an uphill battle. He recognizes it. He calls it a David with Goliath fight. But it, the fact that he even is willing to try to challenge her is interesting. And you know, like you said, to the jungle primary just adds an extra element of surprise to this. Uh, it could be two Democrats. It could be no Democrats. That's probably not going to happen. But Usually knows? when you end up with no Democrats, it's because there isn't an incumbent. If there's an incumbent in there, typically, typically that, that hasn't – although we've certainly seen some high-profile examples right. of, of, of that. Uh, in the in the House of Representatives, the thing about DeLeon that makes me wonder is that this is a guy. Obviously, he he's risen up the political ladder, and so he's got some prominence mm-hmm. um, in a way that is usually helpful for, for these kind of campaigns. But also, like the and and he's he's very progressive. He's a supporter of single payer health care, and that's a boon too. But when I you know. W- Full-time state legislatures like California's, you end up in a lot of like horse trading with an involvement with lobbyists and big business interests and stuff like that. And I just wonder if like, you know, if someone and maybe maybe at the end of the day, Feinstein is unbeatable. Um, And that's certainly a possibility. But if she is beatable, I just wonder if some of that stuff he's not like the 100 percent pure uh, progressive with like kind of n- nothing to attack that right. that might be able to ride the moment. Maybe no one is, but it's just you know I'm I'm kind of curious to see how some of that stuff plays out because if you're if you rise to the level of becoming a chamber leader in a state legislature, you are doing a lot of horse trading and um, deal making and uh, you know carrot and stick stuff, and sometimes that that doesn't end up looking too good on the campaign trail. Yeah. Um, one thing we have to watch for him too is um, the, the creeping allegations, not against him, but within the California uh, within the California Chamber of Sexual Harassment that's been, yeah. been grappling with a lot of high-profile cases that he, to be clear, he is not accused of anything, but... Many, but how leaders dealt with right, it exactly. is definitely at exactly. issue. So that, that'll certainly come up, certainly running against a woman senator as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. All right, so let's now... So we've done uh, some of the big... Um, party groups. We've done some of the candidates. What about what about some of the the interest groups that are kind of mm-hmm. um, out there floating around uh, for 2018? Their plans and um, you know who's who's at the helm. Yeah, uh, one good person to look at if we're looking at you know the Bannon side of the Republican Party is Andy Sarabian. He's really uh, Bannon's right hand man, and he was uh, Daniel Lippman talked to him for this, and uh, he is of course bullish on his party's chances. He thinks that the Bannon way is the way forward. And they have some of the money to back that up. Um, the good way to look at Andy Sarabian is that he is a, a senior leader of the Great America Alliance, which is a super PAC. And they're the ones that really are still backing Rory Moore through thick and through thin. Um, just this past week, after the president formally endorsed Rory Moore, they dropped uh, something north of $100,000 on the race. 
and they've already said we're willing to you know plug a lot more money into that race if we have to. So he he views himself as on the front line of protecting the president's agenda and folding the Steve Bannon agenda, which will not be, always the same thing. Which is not always the same thing, um, but it will also clash with Mitch McConnell and the, his chosen candidates will not always be the chosen candidates of uh, of the Republican establishment in D.C. Yeah, I think that there are a few Senate primaries brewing um, mm-hmm. uh, across the landscape that could be interesting. Missouri, not one of them, no. uh, as as we just mentioned, but um, you know, potentially West Virginia uh, could be one. Um, there's a f- there's a few others and out there. How far he they wade into something like Arizona with Kelly Ward would be interesting to see too. Yes, that Kelly is Ward for sure. It's very much abandoned. Definitely, that's a big one, Kelly yeah. Ward. And so Jeff Flake has has he's, announced he's his gone. retirement there, but Congresswoman. Martha McSally is expected mm-hmm. to uh, jump in, and, but she is viewed with suspicion by uh, some kind of pro-Trump uh, forces. It's interesting mm-hmm. to see ever since uh, it became clear that she was almost certainly going to be running for Senate, she's been appearing on Fox News and on Twitter a lot more praising Trump uh, than before. And it seems like this is like a new camp- bit of the campaign yeah. checklist for Republican candidates. Now, you got to line up your campaign staff, campaign manager, all that stuff. You got to line up your donors. Got to tweet nice things about about Trump, and you got to at least make sure that you know if the Bannon wing is not angry at you. Maybe they're maybe not their best friend, but you probably don't want these guys angry. It it seems in Arizona, just the, like the act of running against Kelly Ward is enough to uh, yeah. to provoke the anger at this point. So we will we will see what happens there. That's a late primary. That's going to be happening in August of next year. So that's uh, a lot of time to percolate. Um, what about on on the flip side? You know, we've been talking uh, a bit about uh, in certainly in the last segment and and you just brought up mm-hmm. with regard to the California state legislature sexual harassment in politics is a huge issue maybe like one of the big stories of 2018 uh, and uh, one of the um, interesting things we saw with Franken was how the uh, you know the first Democratic senators who came out calling for his resignation were the women uh, in the caucus and uh, one of the people on the power list was Stephanie Shriak who's the president of Emily's list um, whose job is to promote uh, 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 pro-abortion rights Democratic women uh, mm-hmm. in office up and down the ballot but especially House and Senate right yeah uh, Stephanie Shriak's an interesting case too um, because now more than ever um, we're seeing a th- we're seeing Democratic women say this is the year of the woman. And if someone's going to lead that charge, it's her. She, her, her group, Emily's List. You know, of course, they're always influential, but they've seen this year just a groundswell of of support and a groundswell of interest from women across the country, uh, Democratic women specifically across the country, who want to run for office. They said they told uh, they told us that you know twenty two thousand women have reached out to them saying, "Hey, I'm considering a run," and that that's huge. That's you, you can't over you know can't overstate that how how big that group is, and that's a group that that they're trying to harness. Wow. Yeah, that's huge, and it's 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 much more compared to last cycle where they said less than a thousand people said they're interested. So we're still a year out. There's still time for people to get in, and they've already done 22 times what they did the entirety of 2016, mm-hmm. where a woman was leading the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think it's interesting if you go through and kind of look down the roster of the big um, the big House races around the country. There are a ton mm-hmm. of female candidates. Some of them aren't going to win their primaries, but a lot are. I think the arguably the top three or three of the top four candidates in Virginia 10 right across uh, the river from the studio uh, are women. Um, the Arguably the best pickup opportunity for Democrats in Daryl Issa's district in Southern California. You've got uh, a woman just jumped in in the last quarter. You've got 
uh, two or three women running in the 45th district nearby. You've got a few running in the 39th, you know, the, in the 25th district, mm-hmm. 39th district. Um, you just run through the map. There are a ton of women candidates, so much so that Emily's List hasn't endorsed some in some of these primaries yet because there are enough running against each other that they're just going to wait and see who wins and then probably endorse some of them for the general election, right? Yeah. And I would probably say this is a good problem they like to have, that they'd rather have, you know, an embarrassment of riches than have less candidates run. So they're, they're someone to watch. Yeah. All right. Well, that man, that's a lot. That's, to, that's a that's, lot. This is a, this is but a lot of good stuff here for us to uh, look forward to. What's the one thing that you took away from the power list that you think we should uh, and the, the whole project of putting this stuff together that you think we should be paying attention to in 2018, a really good story that's coming down the pike? Yeah. So I think one thing I took away is that we hear now about how the Republican Party is the fractured party, how there's two very different competing wins, uh, wings rather, of that party. It, that's true for the Democratic Party as well. There's no party that's not facing inner turmoil. You know, we, we see a primary challenger to one of the oldest, uh, one of the longest serving senators in California. We see a group like uh, Bernie's uh, Bernie acolytes in Our Revolution, you know, pushing the Democratic Party to the left. So both sides are really grappling with their identity. Um, and the 18 people on our list really highlight that, that, that these are the 18 people that will decide – not only their party's future, but the country's futures too. It's wh- whoever wins their respective battles will reshape the map in 2018 and 2019 and 2020. Yeah, I agree completely with that. And it's part of the reason I'm so excited for the fact that 2018 is almost here. Like, almost uh, here. The, the best way for the parties to figure out who they are is who they vote for in primaries. And those primaries are fast approaching. We got the first ones coming up in March. Zach, thank you so much for coming in and talking us through all this. This is great. Thanks for having me, Scott. All right. And of course, as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners. Remember, you can email us if you have questions at nerdcast at politico.com. And remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. Also, thank you to our producer, Matt Sobosinski, our associate producer, Michaela Rodriguez, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and our researcher and Politico Playbook producer and now Nerdcast guest, Zach Montalaro. And, of course, thank you to you, our listeners. We will talk to you again next week. This podcast was made possible by Chubb. Hear how this family created one of the largest private wineries in the world right now. We started making wine in 1948, one bottle at a time. Today, we produce nearly 20 million cases a year. Chubb has helped us grow for the past 30 years. They helped us prevent equipment problems during harvest and provided guidance when we started exporting internationally. Now we're working with them on cybersecurity. My grandfather taught me to make a wine that over-delivers. Chubb over-delivers. Hear more stories at chubb.com slash podcast.